The reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, and can be found on page 1044 of the Church Bibles. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will still store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll have realized three months into post, um, we're living in a new area and getting to find our way around and loving exploring Winchester, such a stunning city. The cathedral holds a really central place in Winchester, and we've been discovering more and more about it. Not only was that a place where I was installed as a canon, um, it's a place where many, many services take place, and I find myself there quite a lot. But I've also realized, and we've been watching some television programs about the history of Winchester, just how important the cathedral has been throughout the history of Winchester as a city, both for the religious life and how it started even before the cathedral was there, that sense of faith coming into the city and being a place that then spread out to the rest of the country, but also politically and historically, and William the Conqueror wanting a place here that he could have his power base here. So when you think of Winchester, the cathedral has a place of deep centrality. You might think Christ Church maybe is more important. But historically, and in that sense of grandeur, we have to see that the cathedral fits that place. The Sermon on the Mount is like Winchester Cathedral. It's a place of grandeur, of stature, of deep importance and relevance. And that's where we find the Beatitudes. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he climbs a mountain, and he sits down. And when a rabbi sat down, you knew you had to listen, because what was coming was going to be really important. <coughs> so Jesus sits down, and he speaks to the disciples and the people gathered around him. And this becomes 
part of the central teaching of Jesus. Understanding who he is and what he has come to do. So we want to make a start in studying scripture to really understand who Jesus is. There's no better place than starting with the Sermon on the Mount. And that part of the teaching begins with the Beatitudes. It's a really strange word. But Beatitude basically means blessed. A series of statements, each beginning with this word, blessed are this type of people. For theirs, and then comes a promise. A series of statements that describe a people and a way of living, followed up by a promise. So before looking at that first beatitude, I want us to understand what they are and why they are there. (coughs) And why, for Jesus, it's important to start this solid piece of teaching with the Beatitudes. I'm going to start by telling you what they're not. They're not a new set of commandments. You might read them and think, okay, Jesus has arrived. He's bringing in the new way of being, and the Ten Commandments are now put to one side. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you. But they are not a new set of commandments. What Jesus is not doing, saying, I'm going to give you a rule book. And if you follow this rule book, you'll know then how to live. So we can't read them like that. He doesn't say, act like this as a commandment. So what is he doing? He's actually describing a way of being a way of living. These are statements of a direction of life, an intentional way of living and being. And when we live like this, this then is what we will experience. When we live in this way, the promise is that we encounter God, we receive his blessings, we live in the knowledge of being loved and accepted by Jesus. If we were to think of a kind of overarching way of understanding the Beatitudes, it might be like this. In some ways, it's like answering the question, what do the people of the kingdom look like? What do the people of God's kingdom look like? This is what they look like. So Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God. A new thing has happened. The word is made flesh and Jesus comes, God in the human form, and he shows us what the kingdom is like. And he starts this solid teaching by saying, let me show you what it looks like to live as the kingdom of God. So it's important to see the Beatitudes in that light, not as a set of commandments, not something that we are striving to be, because we can't do that, that doesn't work, but a way of being that as we let Jesus fill us should become more and more natural and instinctive to who we are. These are statements that describe how together we can live more like Jesus. They are values for community living. It's really important, particularly as we're facing challenges in our own nation at the moment, to learn to live together as kingdom people. 
with these values shining through us, that we can offer something to the world around us, that we can demonstrate to society there is another way. What does it look like to live as kingdom people? We can start by looking at the Beatitudes. But they are challenging. They stretch our thinking because in each one of them, we see demonstrated to us the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus is subversive and radical, and we sometimes forget that. But as he taught, as he sat down and taught, what he was saying was so radical to those who were hearing him. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor, for they shall. And people were thinking, we're looking around in our society, and it doesn't look as if the poor and the outcast and those who mourn are being blessed because they're right on the edges. And to all intents and purposes, we can't see what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is subverting that worldview. And he's saying, truly, as kingdom people, these are the values by which we live. And that's true today as well, that as we read these Beatitudes, we can be so challenged in understanding what Jesus is actually saying to us, because the reality, as we look out, isn't always what we read here. We would love it to be. But to come alongside somebody who's mourning, it's hard to sometimes see a blessing in that. So Jesus' understanding of the kingdom is subversive and radical, and the world still hasn't got it. We still think that in order to be happy or to be blessed, if we want to believe all the adverts that we see on our televisions, we need to attain more. We need to be successful. We need to compete with our neighbors. We need to become self-reliant and self-sufficient. And then we are truly blessed. Problem is, when that really happens, when we find people who have reached the pinnacles of success, very often they are the ones who are saying life is still empty. Because what the world offers doesn't come up as truth. It glistens and glitters. But the reality is without Jesus, there is an emptiness. So we can understand the challenge of the Beatitudes, but it's still a challenge to us today to truly see the blessings in these values of how Jesus is showing us how to live. It's also important to realize that these are not written to us as an individual person. I can easily open my Bible at home and think, okay, God, how am I meant to live? And take it all very individually. These are written to a community. To be kingdom people means to live in community with one another. So these are beatitudes and values and statements to you as a community. And that's a really exciting journey that you'll be on over the autumn, particularly with a new vicar arriving. Really asking that question, what does it look like for us in community to live as God's kingdom people and to have an impact here in Winchester? So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
One interpretation of these verses reads this like this. Happy are those who know their need of God. Happy are those who know their need of God. I'm sure we can all sit here this evening and say we know we need God. We know we need God in our lives because that's our experience and that's what's going on for us day by day. Sometimes, though, that can become a little bit of a head knowledge. And we know in our heads our need for God. But what Jesus is saying here is blessed are those who truly need, who truly are dependent, who truly surrender. Because when we live like that in true surrender to God, only then can we understand the blessing of living as his kingdom people. And when heaven meets earth and we experience what it means to live in his kingdom, that is the blessing that comes. Several years ago, a book was written by an American called Brennan Manon. And it was called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he had noticed in American churches that there was a lot of, speak, a lot of talk about living by grace. And sermon after sermon about how important it was to live in grace. We are saved through grace alone. And that would pour out in the messages. But what he noticed was that people were living in a way that didn't look as if they were filled with grace. There was guilt, there was anxieties, there was burdens. And he began to ask the question, what is going on here? Because if we believe in grace... That should be changing us. And we should be living in a different way, not with these burdens being piled on our shoulders. So he began to look at really what was going on. And as he searched and met people, he suddenly realized that the people who truly shone with the knowledge of the grace of God in their lives was who he called the ragamuffins. It was the people on the edge whose society probably would have felt were outside and beyond any sense of being blessed. And it was these people who were living as grace-filled Christians. Now, I'm sure that's not the case here. I'm sure you know what it looks like to live as grace-filled Christians. But I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged to ask myself, how am I living my life? If to live as a kingdom child is to recognize that I am poor in spirit, is to recognize that I am totally dependent on God, what might that look like? And how can I learn to become more and more like that? We can turn to scripture and we can see various examples of people who surrendered everything and received from Jesus. Brennan Manning talks about open hands. He talks about the need to receive the gift of grace with open hands, that total surrender. I am nothing without you, Father. And we can see so many examples in Scripture. I love the story of the Samaritan woman who goes to the well at the heat of day. And she's an outcast because her life's terrible. 
And she doesn't want to be found out. She doesn't want to be with people. And she goes when she thinks nobody will be there. And to her horror, there is a Jewish man who asks her for a drink of water. And it gets worse. He begins to tell her about her life. Go and find your husband. I haven't got a husband. No, you're right. The man you've been living with isn't your husband and you've had however many before. Can you imagine that sense of shame? And yet her response when she realizes the love and acceptance of Jesus is one of pure joy. The worst thing has happened to her. She has been found out. And yet she runs back to the village where she is an outcast. And she says, come and meet the man who knows everything about me. Everything about me. And you sense that joy. She had nothing to lose. And with open hands, she could receive all that Jesus had for her. And think of Peter, that wonderful disciple, my favorite disciple, because he made so many mistakes. And he has denied his Lord and Savior three times. And he meets him on a beach. And Jesus gives him breakfast. And he takes him aside and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Of course you know I love you, Lord. Three times. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. And Peter could have just given up. But in that moment, with empty hands, he receives everything that Jesus has to offer him. And he becomes the most amazing church planter. But that moment of deep humility of recognizing everything that he was, and yet Jesus still loved him. I've been really fortunate to see other examples in everyday life of what it looks like to recognize our dependence on Jesus. I want to tell you two examples. And the first is a story of a wonderful group that meets in a church in Guildford, where I was privileged to be part of. And we set up a group to help um, families with children with special needs. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And it's enormous now. It's fantastic. And one year, we decided to run a holiday club for these children because there were so many and it was swamping out the rest of our um, holiday club. And so we ran a holiday club just for these really special children. And there's one little boy who came along and he had virtually no speech, and he was really unsettled. And the only place he was happy was in a swing. And as he was in the swing, the, the leader would just gently push him and sang to him, Jesus' love is very wonderful. By the end of the week, he was calm all the time. And when he sat on the swing on the final day, he rocked backwards and forwards and said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Just phenomenal and the love and the joy on his face. We decided that it would be really good if our wonderful children um, joined us one Sunday at a communion service. They had their own special activities in church, and we had a communion service, which is, for our church, relatively formal. But we thought, actually, it doesn't seem right that they're all out in the center, and we're all in here having worship. And so they came in to receive communion. And it was a ragamuffin, raggle tag as they came down the aisle. It took ages to get them downstairs. And they came up one at a time. And there was Ben 
with immense needs in a wheelchair, a life-limiting illness, no communication at all. And as I blessed him, he smiled. And Sean, with Down syndrome, who walked down the aisle and later asked to be baptised. And Jamie, with high autism, he and his family had been part of, a, of another church, a Roman Catholic church, where having your first communion was hugely important. And they'd been told that Jamie couldn't take communion because he couldn't understand what was going on. And he took the bread and he beamed. Open hands, receiving everything that Jesus had for them. I wish I had that simplicity of faith, that deep joy of knowing I am nothing without Jesus my second example was, again, a very, very humbling experience. A friend of mine took me to an open evening of an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The very fact it was open was very humbling, that they were willing for me to go in and to meet them and to learn what life was like for them. It's the most amazing place in terms of how community works together that I have ever been. And I thought, if only the church could be like this. Because there was honesty, there was vulnerability, there was deep care for one another. And there was an acknowledgement of surrender. And that's the language of AA. They speak of a higher power. But it was based on Christian principles. And for many, they surrender to God as part of that AA program. And week by week, for some day by day, they sit and they say, I'm so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for how long? But I surrender daily to God to keep me in that state. And my friend said it had transformed her life and it had transformed her faith because she truly knows what it means to surrender, to be so dependent on God. And I wish in our churches we could have that level of honesty and vulnerability. It is so easy to put on our Sunday best and to walk into church with a smile. And when someone says, how are you? We say, fine. And actually, everything inside is saying, I am not fine. If we are truly dependent on God, we are vulnerable and we are honest and we can be real with one another. Because these Beatitudes are written to us as community. Blessed are you, Christ Church, when you know you are nothing without God. I'm not offending you. You are very, very able. But without Jesus, you are nothing. And that brings with it that total surrender and that total dependence on God. I long to live in the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. And the more that we can adapt and proclaim these values as who we are and live truly to them, the more heaven will touch earth and the more we will see the glory of God in this place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's recognize our total dependence on God. 
our need for Jesus in our lives. And let's surrender and take out of our hands all those things that are preventing God from filling it with the grace that he so longs to give us. Our pride, our busyness, our self-sufficiency, our fear of being found out. Whatever it is that's in your hand, God says, take it away because I have something much better to put there. Amen.